0: We are sinners every one of us and we have a glorious Savior in Christ and it is so good to worship him together. And I'm thrilled that um, that we have this family service and that kids are able to be here with us. Uh, this passage that we're looking at today and it's in Philippians chapter 3 is one of the most important passages in the Bible for kids who are raised in Christian homes and so... Um, I pray that God uses it to minister to to each one of us. We are continuing in our series in Philippians. We've come to chapter 3, and our sermon title is The Surpassing Worth of Knowing Christ. The Surpassing Worth of Knowing Christ. Philippians 3, we will begin in verse 1. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in christ jesus and put no confidence in the flesh though i myself have reason for a confidence in the flesh also if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh i have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of israel of the tribe of benjamin a hebrew of hebrews as to the law a pharisee as to zeal that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. May God bless the preaching of his word. There was once a great preacher in Philadelphia named Donald Gray Barnhouse. Uh, He and his family lived on uh, an 82-acre farm near Doylestown. His weekly sermon was broadcast nationwide on CBS radio, and this was uh, during a time when the radio was America's favorite form of family entertainment. It was during the great golden age of the radio. Now we presently live in the great golden age of everyone looking at their phone. Uh, but then was the golden age of radio. And I am sure that some of our parents and grandparents and great grandparents gathered around the radio in their living room and listened to the great Donald Gray Barnhouse. Uh, Dr. Barnhouse once preached a message in which he posed a question that I want us to think about as well. The question was this. What would things look like if Satan took control of a city? What would things look like? And I wonder how you would answer that. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan really took over Philadelphia, one way it could very well look is like this. Okay, follow this. This is what he says. There would be no drunkenness. There would be no gangs or violence. This is if Satan takes over a city. There would be, all of the strip clubs would shut down. Sexually immoral images would be banned. There would be no swearing. The streets would be clean. Children would be polite and respectful, always saying yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And he says churches would be full every Sunday where Jesus Christ is not preached. In other words, when Satan takes over a city, it just may become a city full of well-behaved, moralistic Pharisees who do not treasure Christ and who are putting confidence in the flesh. Sometimes evil doing and rebellion can take the form of religion and good works. We are certainly not opposed to morality, but we are opposed to moralism. And one of the greatest and most urgent problems in the world today is that so many people are trying to get right with God through credentials rather than through Christ. And in fact, the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter spent years thinking that exact way. Eventually, he learned that not only his sins were worthless, but his religious resume was also worthless. But this, this pharisaical, moralistic way of thinking that, that values our religious resume over a relationship with christ that remains a temptation for us all and it robs christ of glory and it robs us of joy in the lord paul begins here in verse one by repeating the command to rejoice in the lord we've seen paul mentioning joy and rejoicing throughout this letter as we're going through philippians just look for that language of joy and rejoicing it shows up constantly throughout the letter most recently Uh, just several verses earlier in the command to receive Timothy and Epaphroditus with joy. And now, just in case his readers are growing tired of the repeated calls to rejoice in Christ, Paul acknowledges in verse 1 that he's writing the same thing. Uh, That he does not hesitate to do so, and he says that it is a safeguard for them. He's writing the same things, and we likewise are a same things church. As pastors, we do not hesitate to preach the same things to you. For nearly 40 years, we have been saying from this pulpit, Come and see what Christ has done for sinners. Come and see the riches of this salvation. Come and experience the joy of knowing Christ, this glorious Savior. The same things. And it is my plan to go on saying these same things as long as I have breath. Until our Lord returns or calls us home, by the grace of God, we will be a same things church. Martin Luther said we need to know this gospel well and beat it into each other's heads continually. Safety comes to the soul that is devoted to the same things. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And then the passage goes on to give a serious danger and a surpassing treasure. Those will be our two points. A serious danger and a surpassing treasure. First, a serious danger. Did you see verse 2 begins with a warning? It's in fact a repeated warning. Look out. Look out because there is danger. And this danger is not an obvious one. It's not like the picture I saw of a sign by the entrance to an ice skating rink that said, caution, watch out for ice. It's not like the sign on a large bin of peanuts at the grocery store that said, danger, this product contains peanuts. We are are to look out for something that's far from obvious. And it is a great danger. And the great danger presented in this passage is that we would put confidence in the flesh. That is, that we would rely on our own moral resume, our accomplishments, our good works. It's the danger of legalism. It's the danger of evangelical Phariseeism. I wonder does it surprise you that Paul reserves his most scathing denunciations for the religious and not for the rebellious I find this absolutely shocking that that his toughest words come to those who strive to follow the law rather than those who have forsaken it they are doing their best to walk in obedience to the law of God they are living moral and religious lives and Paul says look out. Look out for them. I want to just say, is that, is that the danger? Is that really the problem? And God says, yes. Yes, that is the problem. This is why Jesus warned about the Pharisees and why he too reserved his most scathing rebukes, not for the prostitutes and the thieves and homosexuals and drunkards. He reserved his most scathing rebukes for the religiously arrogant and for the moralistic, Bible-believing churchgoers who put confidence in themselves. In Luke 18, there's, there's an incredible story that Jesus tells. He tells a story to, the group he tells it to, He were told is to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went to the temple to pray. So you have two people going to church. There's a religious man who said, God, thank you that I am not like these other men who are living in sin, who are ruining society. Thank you that I'm not like those bad people over there. He said, I fast twice a week. I faithfully tithe. And so I thank you and praise you, O oh God, for your kindness to me in making me not like these other people. That's what he prayed. That's what the religious man prayed. The other man was a tax collector who we're told couldn't even look to heaven. And he just beat his chest and he, he cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what Jesus says is that this man, the sinner, went home accepted by God rather than the other man who was committed to religion and righteous living. The problem with the first man was that he was trusting in his own religious performance. He viewed the great problem as outside of himself. There was no brokenheartedness. There was no contrition. There was no tears over his own sin. And that great danger remains in our hearts today, which is why we are exhorted to look out, to be on guard against this. C.S. Lewis believed, he says this in his book, Mere Christianity. He believed that the legalist in us is the most dangerous part of us. And he said, that is why a cold self-righteous person who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. I hear, So I hear people say in our day, legalism is no longer a great danger, that licentiousness alone is the great danger, and we shouldn't be too concerned about legalism in this present immoral age. That perspective, I believe, is completely and entirely misguided. Paul would vehemently disagree, and more importantly, God himself disagrees. This same danger remains with us today. Now, Paul was speaking here of, about these Judaizers. They were professing Christians who were Jewish, and they were saying that, that Gentile Christians needed to submit to the Mosaic law, including circumcision and dietary laws. And it was the perspective of these Judaizers that anyone who failed to do so was a dog and an evildoer. Uh, that was their own language and ideas that they were, were using. Our family recently got a dog. Uh, it's an adorable mini golden doodle named Henry. We love him. That's not what is in view in this text here. When, when dogs are brought up, in Paul's day, dog was a classic Jewish image of impurity. Uh, an image of uncleanness. And what, what Paul does here, it's actually quite brilliant he says to these Judaizers, actually, you are the dogs, and you are the evildoers, and you are the mutilators of the flesh, which is a derogatory description of circumcision. And he goes on to say, the real circumcision, the true people of grace, look at verse 3, are those Jews and Gentiles who, and then there's three marks here, this is the people of God, a description of, of who we are in Christ worship by the Spirit the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ is the mark of the new age who does in us what the law could never do namely to empower obedience to empower service to empower our worship we worship by the Spirit we glory in Christ Jesus rather than glorying in ourselves we glory in him And three, we put no confidence in the flesh, meaning our confidence is in nothing that we do, is in nothing that we are. Our confidence is in Christ alone. This, Paul says, is who we are. And Christians, we ought to remember today and celebrate that once we did not worship God in the Spirit, once we did not boast in Jesus Christ, but then God sent his Son, God gave us, his spirit. He gave you a heart that boasts in the finished work of Christ. And now we are among those for whom Christ means everything in the world. We dare not trust in ourselves, but we trust wholly in him. Paul goes on to say that not only, so these guys are actually the dogs and evildoers. He also says, and I love this, if we're doing the religious resume thing, Let's go a few rounds. In other words, you think you have reason for confidence in the flesh? Paul says, I have more. And the reason is because everything that was valued in Jewish society, Paul had. He says, my credentials are better. My achievements are greater. Paul basically engages here in a freestyle rap battle. He he throws down tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, he goes off, and I just imagine everyone in the crowd is like, oh, you know, Paul is, Paul just cuts loose here. But his goal, what's his goal? His goal is not to win first place in the boasting in the flesh competition. His goal is rather to ridicule those who enter the game at all. In verses five and six, he gives seven autobiographical features. The first four are privileges received by birth. Some of us have privileges received by birth through his parents. The other three he worked to achieve. You have to understand he was deeply committed to the law of the Lord and to pure religion. His his scripture memory, his devotions would make us look pathetic. His fasting, his generosity, All of it was on another level. Paul was a religious stud and everyone knew it. But he says, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. So take all of it, all of the accomplishments, all of the attainments, all of the privileges that he had. He says, I count all of it As a loss. Friends, what will we glory in? What will we take pride in? What will we boast in? My confidence must never be in my religious acts, my hard work, my upbringing, my accomplishments. I do want to say to the youth and to the children here, here's such a valuable lesson for us. Don't put your confidence in being raised in a Christian home. Don't put your confidence in the kind of experience that you had from your parents or in your church. Don't put confidence in your, okay, I, I go to church. I was baptized. I had this experience at youth camp. We can thank God for certain things, but we can't put our confidence in those things. We can't rely. Don't put your confidence in being a good kid one way to be this is the whole teaching of this this passage one way to be an evil doer is to rely on your own good works and moral performance for salvation we can't do that instead we join paul in counting everything as a loss and why do we do it because we have found a surpassing treasure so there is not only this great and serious danger there is also a surpassing treasure, the second point. And verses 7 through 11 here is one of the most glorious expressions of devotion to Christ in all of scripture. It begins with language from accounting. In verse 7, there are gains and losses. He is, he's recording all of his assets, his gains, and he says that all of it is loss compared to to knowing Christ. You can think of a a, a balance scale. Put knowing Jesus on one side and then put everything that this world has to offer on the other side of that scale. The value and the worth of knowing Jesus far surpasses the rest. Verse 8, he says, I count everything as loss. This is an entire reorientation of our values. What are the things that we care about in life? He says, I count everything as a loss because of this one thing, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I wonder, can you say the same? Is it true of you? Have you counted everything this world has to offer as a loss because of the surpassing worth? because of the surpassing treasure that has been found of knowing Christ. Later in that same verse, he says, I count them as rubbish. The word here refers to manure, uh, excrement, garbage. Rubbish is, uh, is too mild of a translation here. Um, I think that the, uh, one translation uses the word dung, and that's uh, a better and more, more fitting translation. Uh, translation. Jared Packer says this, commenting on this verse. He says, when Paul says he counts the things he lost rubbish or dung, he means not merely that he does not think of them as having any value, but also that he does not live with them constantly in his mind. What normal person spends his time nostalgically dreaming of manure? Friends, what What normal person spends his time nostalgically dreaming of of manure? Too many people are going through life nostalgically dreaming of manure when there is a treasure of surpassing worth available to us all. And that treasure is knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In other words, it's, it's a loving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to know Him and even more glorious to be known by Him, to love Him and to rest in the riches of His love for us. What we value in life above everything else is not something that we have received other than Christ, but receiving Christ Himself. A relationship with a person who is personally valuable to us for who He is. The treasure is not just having our sins forgiven and avoiding hell. As glorious as these gifts are, the treasure of surpassing worth is Christ himself. To know Christ, to gain Christ, to be found in Christ, to be united to him. Paul says, put this treasure against everything in the world. And my heart says, take the world, but give me Jesus. All of the attainments, all of the accomplishments, all of the things that we may desire in life that are good gifts from the Lord, all of it, we say, pales in comparison to the joy, to the treasure, to the riches of knowing Christ. We will be a people who treasure Christ above all. We will be a people who continually press deeper into a knowledge of his love. He is everything to us. The Puritan Isaac Ambrose says this, In this knowledge of Christ, there is an excellency above all other knowledge in the world. There is nothing more pleasing and comfortable, more animating and enlivening, more ravishing and soul-contenting. Only Christ is the whole of man's happiness, the son to enlighten him, the physician to heal him. The wall of fire to defend him. A friend to comfort him. The pearl to enrich him. The ark to support him. The rock to sustain him under the heaviest pressures. He says heaven's inhabitants will be ever digging into this gold mine. Ever rolling this soul delighting in precious stone. Ever beholding, viewing inquiring and searching into the excellency of this same christ if i had but one word more to speak to the world it should be this oh let our spirits be taken up with christ let us not busy ourselves too much with toys or trifles with ordinary and low things but look to jesus let us look to Jesus. Let us look to Christ who alone is our treasure in life and death. Friends, don't, don't go through life busy in yourself with toys and trifles. Stop spending so much time nostalgically dreaming of manure. Joy and refreshment is found here. It's found in knowing Christ, in treasuring Christ, the surpassing word. Nothing compares to him. Paul then goes on to give one of the greatest statements and summaries of salvation in all of Scripture. The passage includes three benefits of our union with Christ. Justification, verse 9. How can we be declared righteous? In the sight of God. We are declared righteous, not by good works, not by the law, but through faith in Christ who died in our place that we might be clothed in his perfect righteousness and accepted by God. It's the great doctrine of justification. Second, sanctification. Verse 10. Sharing in the the power of Christ's risen life, that resurrection power, and sharing in his sufferings, becoming more like him. There is power to change. There is power to sustain us in suffering. Justification, sanctification, and then verse 11, glorification. Participating physically in the resurrection from the dead when Christ returns. And I'll tell you, this doctrine, this glorious doctrine of the resurrection, I feel like every day every passing year of my life becomes more and more meaningful to me. All the more so as more and more church members and beloved friends go to be with the Lord. We will attain the resurrection from the dead. Christ is our justification. Christ is our sanctification. Christ is our glorification. In this knowledge of Christ, there is an excellency far above all knowledge in the world this is yes we are a same things church and to write and to say the same things to you it's no trouble to me and it's safe for you and so what we can anticipate in the church you know we there's a lot of talk in church leadership about vision about about vision casting direction mission these sort of things we are a same things church meaning lord willing The things that we're talking about and emphasizing 10, 15 years from now are the same things that we emphasize now and the same things by the grace of God that we have been talking about throughout our history. Our mission as a church is to treasure Christ. That's the center of it all. We want to know him more. We want to love him more. We want to rejoice in him more. And it's a mission that involves each one of us. Each one of us, it's not just the pastors, not just me, but each one of us, we, we want to be a church where, where children, every child is brought up from a young age to treasure Christ and has vision to live for him. We want to be a church where every teenager considers knowing Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of this world and the fleeting pleasures of sin. Teenagers who stand out and shine in this world precisely because they say, take the world, give me Jesus. We want those kinds of teens. We want to be a church where where single Christians are deeply satisfied in Christ, where marriages are displaying the love of Christ. We want to be a church that preaches and sings the beauty of Christ, a church that enjoys fellowship and community, mostly talking about the things of Christ. We want to be a church that shares this glorious treasure with a needy world all around us, a church that rejoices in the Lord and trusts him in the midst of suffering so that when hardship comes, we say, there may be much that I treasure that is taken from me, But the greatest treasure is untouchable and therefore christ will be my glory we want to be a church that faces even death itself with the confidence of knowing to live is christ and to die is gain it's all about christ the treasure of surpassing worth the one who loves us and gave himself for us make christ your treasure today this is what it means to be a christian that we consider knowing Christ and gaining Christ and delighting in Christ to be greater than everything that this world has to offer. I wanna invite the band to return as I close. The central message, I've, I've spent so much of my life saying this and it needs to be continually said because there's such great misunderstanding about this very point in the world today. The central message of Christianity, the main thing we want our kids To know so you kids who are here the main thing that your parents care about is not you being a well behaved kid it's not you being an obedient kid that matters we care about that but you can be well behaved and obedient and you can miss the thing that matters most what we care most about and and the whole nature of christianity is christ himself what we care The goal is not to be more religious. What we care most about is not being a more kind and loving person. That's not the center of Christianity. That's not, that's not the center of what, what it's all about. There was once a pastor, this was decades ago, who had a guest approach him after a Sunday service, after he preached the gospel. This man approached him, greeted him, saying, Pastor, thank you for your sermon. I'm an astronomer, you know. And as far as I'm concerned, the whole of Christianity can be summed up by saying, do unto others as you would have others do to you. And the pastor replied, well, I am just a humble theologian. And as far as I am concerned, the whole of astronomy can be summed up by saying, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Friends, that is no summary of the whole of astronomy, nor is the call to good works a summary of Christianity. All of Christianity focuses on a person, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the surpassing worth of knowing him. We glory in Christ alone, the righteousness of Christ, the power of the resurrection. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count not just some things, here are the things that are, no, I count, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Christ alone is our treasure. Christ alone is worthy to be praised. Let us exalt and magnify his name together.